This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. We continually, uh, of course, update you here on the Bloomberg about what's going on with the virus. And I've got to say, yesterday was, I feel like, a turning point once again as we saw surging new cases in a bunch of southern and western states. We had states reopening plans, putting them on hold. Hospitalizations are up. And then Anthony Fauci, the U.S. government's top infectious disease specialist, warning lawmakers that uh, virus cases could top and rise to 100,000 a day if behaviors don't change. I can't make an accurate prediction, but it is going to be very disturbing. I will guarantee you that because when you have an outbreak in one part of the country, even though in other parts of the country they're doing well, they are vulnerable. I made that point very clearly last week at a press conference. We can't just focus on those areas that are having the surge. It puts the entire country at risk. We are now having 40-plus thousand new cases a day. I would not be surprised if we go up to 100,000 a day if this does not turn around. And so I am very concerned. Yep, that number got our attention. That's, of course, Dr. Anthony Fauci talking to senators yesterday in a hearing held by the Senate Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee. And Jason Dyer. Absolutely. Well, from one of the nation's top doctors to our top doctor, Dr. Mm -hmm. Ian Lesbader, back with us, clinical associate professor of medicine at NYU's Langone Medical Center, joining us once again on the phone from New York City. So, Ian, when you heard that from Dr. Fauci, I'm guessing it didn't shock you, given how on the front lines you've been on this, but it has to be disappointing and and a little bit scary, especially given that you've been on the front lines of this and seeing what's happened in New York City. Hi, Carol and Jason. Yes, I think most doctors uh, that I speak to certainly are very concerned, and hospitals are concerned as they should be. Um, to some degree, you know, I think by by not really mandating, you know, masks and social isolation, uh, really by giving that as an option, which, you know, with multiple states and in a free country, that's certainly one approach. We're really, in a way. Uh, following the the Swedish model, which is uh, letting nature take its course. And uh, when that happens, there's certainly a significant risk. As Dr. Fauci says, you know, cases at this point are about 40 or 50,000 a day. We know they're really much higher because we're really only picking up about 1 in 10. We're only diagnosing 1 in 10. There are probably 10 times more people who have uh, COVID than, than are actually being picked up by tests. So we're talking hundreds of thousands a day of new cases. And, of course, that translates into potentially um, a higher surge on hospitals and healthcare facilities, and this is what we're seeing across the Sun Belt. Yeah, and it's it, not even it's not even just the surge um, with hospitals, w- which is a concern, but really uh, ultimately a higher death rate. And then what I like to call post-COVID syndrome, even people who get through it often have a lot of uh, other symptoms and ongoing health care issues. So it's uh, it's quite worrisome. 
Ian, let's talk about that. In anticipation of our conversation, I was talking to others about um, exactly what you're getting to. You know, you were the first one. Jason and I can kind of almost remember the day where you talked about the blood clots, you know, throughout the body. And this was just not something you see often. Talk to us about the implications of that and and, and the problems that seem to be maybe staying with some patients even after they recover. Exactly. So this, uh, and Dr. Fauci has said this, he said this is a virus with protein manifestations, meaning multiple ways of manifesting. We typically think of uh, a virus as perhaps as a pneumonia or fever, chills and aches. But this virus is unique. We we really can't think of uh, of something uh, similar where multiple organs are affected, strokes uh, in the brain and kidney disease, liver disease, very high liver function test, GI disease, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. And not only that, uh, besides um, uh, killing people uh, with uh, blood clots, and and, uh, some of the latest data show that the virus seems to increase uh, platelet aggregation or the stickiness of platelets, and platelets normally, you know, we need to to cause some clotting when you get an injury or a cut. But when there's a massive increase in platelet stickiness, you get clots everywhere, and that probably explains a lot of the, you know, severe consequences that we see as a result of these infections. Well, and presumably that ultimately has an impact on a hospital and doctor's abilities to treat a whole host of things, including new cases, but also this long tail, as it were, uh, Ian, of COVID. Exactly right. So we have the, you know, the acute uh, injury or the the acute illness, and we're still a bit perplexed why there is uh, a number of patients who have mild to, to no symptoms, and this is that large, young group of people who are asymptomatic. They form a reservoir. They often feel fine and feel invulnerable. They're not wearing masks. They're potentially transferring this to other people who are older, which is why you know, universal masking is certainly a, a reasonable request for, for all. Um, and then uh, in susceptible patients, you get this really uh, cascade of effects that make people more short of breath, have clots everywhere. And then even if people survive uh, after hospitalization, many have a long-term, yeah. not only psychological effects, but physical effects. Ian, when do you realistically still expect a virus? I mean, a vaccine, rather. So, I, you know, I think this is encouraging news. Pfizer is one of a number of companies, Moderna, J&J, AstraZeneca, you know, who are really moving forward. A lot of these studies are going to go into phase three with wider number of patients. The Pfizer study is, is fairly small, uh, you know, 45 patients or so. Um, but it certainly is encouraging. What we don't know is in a larger number of patients, uh, how many will develop antibodies that are neutralizing, how long those antibodies will last, and will the virus mutate? So I think it is encouraging that we're making progress. It is a unique uh, way of making uh uh, a vaccine with messenger RNA, which gets into your own cells and uh, uh, forms these uh, proteins that are typical of the coronavirus, COVID-19, typically the spike protein, and then your body forms antibodies to that. So you're not subject to the risk of uh, a live virus. And we think that this is uh, hopefully a better way. It is a relatively new technology. But again, there are a lot of hurdles uh, before not only uh, is it proven effective, 
but it can be ramped up, manufactured, and distributed. And probably there'll be several vaccines using similar technology, uh, hopefully with similar efficacy. So I think at some point, uh, and I'm thinking early 2021, uh, but I think it can be a very bumpy road uh, until we get there where where it's widespread. And then you have to see how many people will be willing to take it. But since we know probably 25 million or more Americans probably have the virus based on that one in 10, we know the death rate is certainly higher than the, you know, 125 or 150,000 people. That's going to climb much, much higher. You know, we're going to have a lot of shocks to the system, the economic system, uh, and, and I think it is. This is encouraging, but it's it is an early step in a very long process to to turn things around. I don't mean to be negative. I'm just trying right. to keep it in perspective. Yeah, we look to you to keep it real for us, Ian. Um, so speaking of which, speaking of long roads, uh, the road back for New York City. You are there in New York. You saw, I'm sure, that Mayor de Blasio and Governor Cuomo said, "Mm, let's slow down a little bit on indoor dining, uh, expand some outdoor dining. This is a cautious reopening, to say the least, uh, clearly informed by what we see going on in the rest of the country, in New York and New York City, specifically not wanting to fall back. What do you make of it so far, the reopening? Right. This is really unexplored territory. We, we, it's not like there's a template uh, to follow. And I think New York certainly has done remarkably well compared to the rest of the country. We dealt with a major hospital surge. And I think everyone is afraid justifiably of either a second wave or losing ground. And uh, that would be a real strain on not only the economics, but the hospital system. And so I think we have to be careful. Certainly, we know outside is better than inside. Wearing masks, having some social distance certainly reduces the risk. Um, And I think uh, he's uh, trying to be prudent. It's going to be very difficult to know when is the all clear signal that restaurants can go back. And I think that puts a question on the whole economy and uh, and small business owners. You know, they're they're under strain. So I think um, we do need to get back. The optimal time for that is unclear. And I think if there's any place to begin that, it appears New York City is ready to take some some forward steps as long as we track and trace and contact trace and make sure we're not seeing any any recurrence or, or second wave. Right. And we're getting ready for that phase three reopening come July 6th. Um, Ian, thank you so much. Have a, a great holiday, a safe holiday. And of course, we'll check in with you uh, next week. Dr. Ian Lusbader, clinical associate professor of medicine at the NYU Langone Medical Center on the phone from New York City. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. Jason and I talked about this early. It's the perfect beach read, social distancing beach read, mind you, or staycation or work from homecation read. Uh, there's work lots of from homecation. <laughs> you know, That's I didn't get a, a lot one. of sleep. I'm throwing a lot of words out there. Um, it has stolen Super Bowl rings. It has corporate espionage and the most famous art heist in modern history. It is time for Business Week's annual heist issue. It's a double issue. Uh, lots of stories of mystery and things gone missing. Behind it all, features editor Max Chafkin on the phone from Queens, New York, along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber on the phone in Massachusetts. Joel and Max, got to tell you. We love this issue. And I feel like it's what everybody needs right now. Well, that was why we made it. (laughs) Go ahead, Joel. 
Well, you know, this is the third annual heist issue. It's a uh, huge testament to one Max Chafkin, um, who has become just the captain of this thing. And, uh, you know, Max and I just like all year long are basically like talking about this issue and like putting together our, our works in progress list or whip list and, you know, tr trying to figure out the ones that are going to make it or not make it. And, you know, the, this issue is a culmination really of that process and a huge testament to him. And, you know, all these um, reads, you know, we've always set, joked that um, we want to kind of steal your summer with this issue. And, and boy, um, could we have come out at a better moment in time for that. Um, yeah. So hopefully uh, everyone can, you know, pack this around all summer long and uh, take their time enjoying it because the stories are just tremendously good. Max, what is your favorite? <laughs> Uh, I mean, you know, I love them all, but uh, the, the the story that uh, Carol mentioned at the top, the, the Super Bowl ring yep. heist, um, is is epic and and wonderful. It's by uh, Zeke Fox, and I don't want to ruin the whole thing, um, but it's about a very, very, very committed New England Patriots fan uh, who decided uh, in uh, basically about 13 years ago to get revenge uh, on on the Giants, and, and and the way he decided to do that was by stealing their Super Bowl. And it wasn't even the biggest heist that he went after. And for that, you'll have to read the story. Um, uh, you know, you guys talked with Claire uh, Suddeth yep. yesterday um, about yeah. her story uh, about the Gardner Museum, where this $500 million mystery uh, remains this, this sort of th thing in the art world that no one has ever been able to crack. Um, I, w my favorite little detail about that is uh, we call, we've called it the, the case of the empty frames because – the museum has to keep the frames empty on the walls um, because otherwise the the entire museum would actually turn over to Harvard. They have to keep things exactly as they were when the heiress handed them down and created the museum. Um, so it's like a, a heist within a heist if they you know if they they act out of line. Um, and and the stories just kind of keep going. There's an amazing one that we just published today by uh, Natalie Obiko Pearson um, in, in, about Huawei. And Canada, where there was once a company called Nortel, a mysterious hack um, sank that company. Huawei, it co coincides with basically the moment in time that Huawei really started to emerge as a dominant force. And actually, uh, Huawei ended up hiring a whole team of Nortel engineers who basically ended up being the ones that built 5G at Huawei. Uh, so all of these stories, it's a way of talking. And there's an, uh, another one that we'll talk more about tomorrow, I hope, um, that make it very of the moment. So it's a way for us to be, be both timely and, and timeless, which is sort of one of my favorite attributes that we try to do. They're the just so much fun. So, Max, I'm just curious about the conversations you guys have in the newsroom when you are putting this together. you got to think about it. It comes out every year, at least for the last four years. So, you know, what goes on in the newsroom as you get ready, you know, and you plan for this? Well, so, I mean, these are mostly fun. Real, not every story in this issue is what I would call, you know, 100% ball of laugh. Um, but, but for the most part, we're talking about stories that are fun and entertaining to, uh, to report and, and, and entertaining to write and entertaining to read. And so, you know, the reporters in the newsroom uh, like this issue. It's a, it's a kind of uh, journalist favorite. And, um, and so, yeah, throughout the year, you know, we're, Joel, like Joel said, you know, we're fielding pitches um, of for these stories, the, the Super Bowl one that I mentioned was, uh, you know, months in the making. I think we first started talking about it in October or November of last year. 
Um, and, uh, and, and, and so it's, it's a kind of a combination of just sort of over the year, uh, you know, fielding a bunch of pitches, but then also trying to be a little bit imaginative and think about, you know, what are some, what are business stories that you wouldn't necessarily think of as a conventional heist story, but that could be thought of that way. And, and, and that's one that's like the Nortel story that, that Joel uh, mentioned, you know, also, by the way, happy Canada day, everybody. I mean, the story is about a, um, a Canadian (laughs) national champion that, um, was, you know, through its own hand, uh, through the market and through a hack was destroyed. And so it's not a, it's not a straight up heist, but it, it is a story where there, where some theft plays a role. And there's also kind of a, a sort of business theft that is like one company taking another company's market share. So we try to take a, you know, a, 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 a sort of broader view of heist. And then we, and then, but of course they have to have some like just classic, you know, take the painting type, type, yeah. uh, type yeah. stories. And, and, and we actually have two of those issues. So, so it's, it's a mix. Canada so, Day. Canada Day. Got to do a celebrate. Zoom cocktail party for that one a little yeah, bit later there on. There you go. Just thinking. Um, so, Max, just one last quick question for you. I mean, as you thought about this issue, and as Joel pointed out, you know, this is one that you're talking about for months and months and months of it in advance. Obviously, the world changed uh, pretty dramatically over the past four or five months. How does pandemic sort of infuse a project like this, other than everybody's working remotely and you're probably doing, to Carol's point just a minute ago, a lot more Zoom calls, but how does it affect it editorially? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the the process, it's all the usual tough stuff that everybody's going through. Um, But but in terms, we we thought a lot about how how to treat the pandemic because on one hand, you know, maybe maybe people don't want to read anything about, uh, you know, an art, an art theft or, or yeah. something like that, because, you know, it couldn't be furthest thing fur- furthest from your mind right now. And and our thought was like, look, people need a break where people are ready to obviously the, there's there's room for um, there's room for all kinds of stories. And, and the pandemic, there is a teensy bit of pandemic in this issue. Um but uh, we just thought, you know, time to give people a little bit of a break. Let them let them read some read some news and read some stories that 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 you know don't touch on this horrible thing that we're going through. And and hopefully, you know, readers will appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's great timing. Jason and I are still talking about the bee story. Oh, we just bees. love that one from from last year. From last year. Yeah. Yeah. All right, re- great. Re up that. Go to businessweek.com <laughs> and re up that. Max Chafkin, thank you so much. Features editor for Bloomberg, the architect of the heist issue. Mm-hmm. Our thanks as well to Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. And it's time to do a little Business Week economics. Let's talk about everything that's going on in the world of economics, Carol, because yeah. those Fed minutes, uh, obviously very important in terms of setting the tone. Um, happy to catch up with Vinny Catalano. Yeah, he's a chief market strategist over at Stuyvesant Capital Management, global investment strategist at Defoe Redmount, on the phone from New Jersey. Um, Vinny, nice to have you back with us. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing okay. I'm trying to make sense, you know, and just watching the virus uh, developments, watching the economy, watching the market moves. Um, And, of course, we had those Fed minutes uh, earlier. You have some thoughts about the role of the Fed in sure. what you talk about perpetuating a broken economic system. How so? Okay. Several years ago, I had an email debate going on with the then Minneapolis Fed President, Narayana Kachalakota, I believe is how you pronounce mm-hmm. his name. Well done. And I asked a simple question, uh, is the Fed backstopping bad economic behavior? 
because that can happen from time to time. And uh, his response was an interesting one. It was that they are appointed officials, and it is not their job to um, to do to disagree with. They, they might disagree with, but it's not their job to implement different policy than elected officials, meaning politicians. And I just let that thought, okay, it, it sunk in for a while. And then I'm looking at the way the market has, how the Fed has behaved and how the markets have behaved in the economy and everything else over the years. And a couple of other things started to fall into place, which deals with the fact that we're in an economic system which I call neoliberalism, uh, which is the replacement uh, from Keynesianism. And there are certain dynamics and elements that happen within this economic system of neoliberalism that uh, involve a proactive uh, central bank. So now if you put those two things together, what you get is you get a proactive Fed, uh, not reactive like it had been in the past, but since the mid-1990s, the Fed has been proactive. It's been stepping in. It's been um, avoiding, uh, uh, doing its best to have the economy avoid an economic downturn. You know, recessions right, right, cannot right. happen. And, and we end up getting these uh, uh, 10-year period uh, big hits to the economy because they don't allow the normal process to occur. So... The Fed is acting in this proactive manner. Elected officials love that idea because they don't have to make the hard choices. And we do need a new economic system because clearly neoliberalism has run its course. Just like Keynesianism ran its course, neoliberalism has run its course. We need something new, but it's not going to happen because I call the Fed the monetary proterian uh, uh, guard. Uh, they are the protectors of the emperor. They're the protectors of the empire. All right, right, all right, all right, all right, all right. We got a lot of questions, so you get it. Wait, hold on a second. So, so go ahead, Jace. I think you've got something. Well, I mean, I have many questions, but like, so, how much of this is crisis-induced, Vinny, and how much of this was just going on before, and now it's much more apparent? Okay, everything seems to be a crisis. At least in terms well, of this is a big one. I think okay. we can agree this, this is a pretty big one. This is a big one, and this was needed. And this is where the Fed traditionally has been reactive. It's necessary to do because of what's happened. Circumstances, you know, uh, force the situation. But in prior periods, at the end of 2015 and the early part of 2016, when they went into the uh, QE to infinity toolbox. It was at a point in time in which the financial markets were turning down. The economy was getting a little bit weak. It wasn't necessary at that point in time, at least from what I can tell, that they had to step in at that, at that particular juncture. So there were points along the way in which they did things that did not allow the economy to go through its normal creative destructive process, as painful as that is, and then things build up and build up and build up, and then something comes along a catalyst. So, this one was unusual, and, and then we end up with where we're at now. All right. So, okay, we've only got about two minutes, a little bit over. So what, what should be the new economic system? And the other thing, though, I need to ask you, if the Fed did not come in after the Great Recession, after what's happened with the COVID shutdown, I am worried about what might have happened essentially to our economy, our market environment, um, kind of to our system. Are you saying that sure. we should have just let it come undone? No, not at those points in time. It was necessary to step in. They did what they needed to do. 
they stabilize the system, they help the economy get out of a bad situation. But then along the way, it stepped in repeatedly because of this market-centric mentality of what neoliberalism is. And so therefore, the Fed is just reflecting back on, on that ideology. What is the system that will replace it? I don't know. I don't know what it is. I just know the process. Finny, Finny, you can't come up and tell me it's (laughs) this huge problem and then not have a solution. You're a man of solutions, Vinny. Well, that's a great point. What you need is what they call, well, Eric Hoffer called him a man of words. Let's call him a person of words. Somebody who writes the economic theory. Yeah. That then gets adopted by the person of action. And if you look at neoliberalism, the person of words was Milton Friedman, Frederick Hayek, right. 50s and 60s, and then along comes Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, boom, it gets implemented. Those are the people okay. of action. Listen, I will say, I will say, and we're running out of time, but this is one of those things we could, you know, sit down at a bar, have some good red wine, and really talk about it for a long time. But I do agree that there are some things in our economic system uh, that we know, and certainly these crises continue to uh, lay it out for us, that we need to look at our system and maybe rework some things so that uh, it works better. Vinny, um, always provocative. Have a great holiday. Nice to check in with you, you, Vinny. Yeah, be well. Vinny Catalano, Chief Market Strategist at Stuyvesant Capital Management, Global Investment Strategist at Defoe Redmount, on the phone from New Jersey. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Let's get to our next story. Emily Chasen is back with us. Uh, She's talking about what we're all doing, which is working from home, Carol. And she is here to talk about what we do in a green world. Can we be sustainable while we're working from home? I would like to be Emily Chasen. Uh, She joins us on the phone. Tell me what we should be thinking about. Yeah, hi, Jason. Hi, Carol. So in our Bloomberg Green newsletter this week, um, I was looking at what happened when everybody worked from home. And, you know, daily U.S. carbon emissions were down 15% from March to early June. Mm. So just eliminating the commute was a huge impact in terms of reducing emissions. Um, But it turns out that's only part of the story. While all these people were working from home, um, we also talked to Google, and Google found that the number of people searching for how to live a sustainable lifestyle increased by 4,550% during the coronavirus period. So people are trying to be more sustainable at home. I love your story because what you say when it comes to those Google searches, people are searching on composting, switching to green energy providers. That has all become populars, uh, popular. I mean, people – I do agree that folks – don't laugh at me, Jason. <laughs> I'm tired. I'm only today. laughing because Populars? I can only see the very top of your head because <laughs> oh. you moved your screen oh, down. <laughs> sorry. I had to stand up. No, but what's interesting, Emily, is we've been having this conversation whether it's talking about sustainability, whether it's about race and diversity. Like we're all at home kind of really looking – or you know what we're eating. We talked about this with Impossible Foods, the CFO. Like what we're eating. We're really looking, taking a deep dive into our life and looking at kind of our actions. And I, and that plays into what you write about in terms of sustainability. Yeah, I mean, when you're home, all this stuff that's visible to you, you know, most people haven't spent that much time in their home or just kind of come in and out every day. And, you know, spending all this time, you're like, well, what am I really doing here? And it's very visible to you. And the things that you can do to actually reduce your emissions impact are maybe not that obvious. Like using the dishwasher is more energy and water efficient than hand-washing dishes, um, using cold laundry 
cold water to wash your clothes in the laundry um, saves a huge amount of emissions. Like if you talk to Procter & Gamble or 7th Generation, they'll say that that is a huge impact. I do almost all my water. laundry in cold water. Really? Yeah. I have forever. And part of it is because yeah. it's better on your clothes because hot right. water really, in terms of the colors and pigments. So I almost always do all cold water on almost all of my clothes. I'm sorry. Go yeah, ahead. And one of the interesting yeah. ones today, um, we found this story this week about toilet paper. Um, I guess the stuff that we were getting in the office is made of more recycled content. And the fluffier stuff you buy at home is made of more virgin wood pulp from trees. Oh, my so, God, Emily. Uh, we, we went so deep on oh. that story, Emily. It was actually, I think, disturbing to our listeners because we talked uh, ad nauseum about it was a, toilet paper. Emily, it was a TMI moment. Yeah, it was just there was so much about buying habits. And, and I just I'm, I'm glad you weren't listening. It, but but it, it is an important story. But, but it's an important a, piece of the story. But it's an awareness, right? Like we had, we have had now the soft toilet paper conversation at home, and we might have to rethink that. I mean, my husband's like, "Do you really need that soft stuff?" And you know, but yeah. um, but but we're thinking about this stuff, right? Yeah. Well, I guess you know one thing that's interesting about the period too is there's a lot more single-use plastic out there. People are seeing mm-hmm. sort of the masks and the gloves on the ground and thinking, oh, well, am I using all the plastic? And you know, when you eliminate your commute, you're actually probably reducing some of your single-use plastic because you don't have that coffee cup to go or anything like that. But, um, you know, the plastics industry has really pushed that, you know, their stuff is safe right now. And I think Greenpeace just this month put out a piece saying, you know, reusable bags and cups are still safe. Like they didn't want um, people to think that you have to do single-use to be safe. You can still wash things and they're still safe from coronavirus. Yeah, yeah, I think we need to understand that. Uh, we're on a mission in our home to, like, get rid of, um, and I'm really sorry, Ziploc, but Ziploc bags and things. Like, we've been buying a lot of those, the, the new kinds of, is it silicone, silicone, um, the plastic and stuff that's supposed right. to be safer in terms of what, you and know. And the wax paper yeah. and things yeah, like Yeah, like really rethinking that because you can go through so much of that stuff. Yeah. Right? Well, it's it's interesting to change when people change habits, too. When you do that or, like, you know, stop buying straws. Um, mm-hmm. What you do is it's kind of hard in sustainability to unsee it, right? Once you see something and you start doing it, you're kind of not going to go backwards on that behavior. Um, yeah. So it's pretty interesting as people adopt it and as they're going to stay home more, um, that this could be sort of a long-term impact. Well, and I will say, and I know you experienced this too, uh, Carol, kids mm-hmm. are a great check on this, especially teenagers who are definitely much more uh, environmentally aware, calling us out on, you know, things, whether it's totally. single-use stuff or, I don't know, I'm just spitballing here, printing, uh, in any case. Emily Chasen, thank you so much. Sustainability Editor for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from New York City. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It's time for the drive to the close. Let's head south. Check back in with Kara Murphy, Chief Investment Officer for Goldman Sachs Personal Financial Management, joining us on the phone from Dallas. Also, a proud Hoya, I will point out, uh, alum of that <laughs> fine institution. Kara, uh, great to have you back with Carol and myself. So, what's it like in Dallas right now? Well, it's amazing how quickly we've gone to being relatively unaffected by COVID to a new hotspot. So, yeah. my. Per- mm. 
hasn't changed too much, but definitely the headlines have. So your life hasn't changed that much? Well, we've, we've been locked down since mid-March. You know, okay. I spend a lot of walking up and down my street, not going to restaurants. And so, you know, that really hasn't changed. But driving around, you know, recently you had seen definitely more people out and about. Um, I think that's probably starting to change again. But, yeah. you know, personally, we're holed up like everybody else. So what does it mean as we, you know, Jason and I kind of kid that, you know, we make a little bit of progress and then we fall back. I mean, that's certainly what yeah. we're seeing here in terms of the reopening. Um, but it's not just about the reopening. It's about the implications it has, obviously, on individuals, on the economy. Um, markets seem to be okay with it. So there is that disconnect. But uh, how do you see it? Yeah, it's interesting because I, I think we can expect that there are going to be a lot of fits and starts with this virus for quite some time. So we're probably going to have to get used to this. Um, but when we look very broadly at the market, and, and it's incredible to say this, given all of the volatility that we've seen over the last couple of months, but when we look at the market today, it feels about fairly valued. And, and one way that we look at it is, you know, on purely evaluation basis. If you compare where we are today to a very long-term historical average, we look expensive. But then if you isolate those periods in history where inflation is low and stable as it is today, we look about in line with those periods. So that, could mean, that, that likely means going forward, we can expect stock returns to be about mid-single digits in line with near-term earnings growth. Um, but it feels like we're about where we should be. So that's kind of an amazing place to be here in, uh, I was about to say June, but it's actually July uh, 2020, Kara. So what's an investor to do? I mean, I I look at this, you know, both from a professional perspective, but also as a guy who has a 401k who, you know, sort of watched sure. everything really plummet and then come back. But I'm still worried because I see the headlines and everything around the virus as well. Uh, you know, I see governors and mayors being very, very cautious. Uh, and yet I see a market that's like, do, 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 here we go. So <laughs> what do you do? Yeah. And so I, I think one, one very interesting lesson that we've had during this downturn, and remember, like we've had a recession in a bear market in the last couple of right. months. It's pretty wonderful. But one lesson that I took away from that is that this downturn was in many ways very typical. So the speed at which it unfolded was very atypical. What normally takes months or years took weeks. So it's been very hard to kind of get our arms around that. But during the downturn, we had risk assets like stocks and high yield greatly underperform. And we had bonds that did a really great job buffering during that period. And then as the market started to, 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 re, um, to, to re-accelerate, uh, we had the reverse of that. So like a lot of these sort of like classic lessons that individual investors should have I think we're the right ones. So you need to have a diversified portfolio. You might be all really excited about stocks, but there are going to be periods when stocks are going to greatly underperform. Um, and so it's really best to have a mix of both. You sound I just want to break in. You sound fairly enthusiastic. And I just do wonder, we're going to head into another earnings cycle. Um, what do we need to hear when companies report that support the bounce back that we've seen in equities so far? Yeah, and it's interesting because even just this morning, we got some ISM manufacturing data that was quite optimistic, you know, coming in at the headline number coming in at 52.6. Um, this tends to be a pretty good leading, leading indicator for the next couple of months. And also some more contemporaneous data that we've seen in terms of um, people getting out on the road more, consumer spending. So I think what we're just going to want to see is more on the ground data confirming that 
you know, people are indeed starting to open their wallets more. Some people are getting back to work. There are obviously some areas of the economy that are going to continue to be really challenged. You know, think bars are probably going to be really challenged for quite some time. But other areas like technology are able to operate pretty well remotely. I mean, my business, everybody's at home, and we're just as productive as we were. So not to say that there aren't challenges, but I think we're going to want to hear from companies that they're continuing to kind of get back to a state of normal. So, Kara, if you can generalize, what's the tone of the calls that you're getting from clients as you talk to them? How are they feeling? Does it depend on where they are geographically? Like, what's the tone from them? Yeah, it's very interesting because throughout this period, I will say that by and large, our clients felt okay, which, Mm. again, is remarkable given what we've been through. And I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One is, you know, I, I firmly believe that an investment portfolio it should be constructed in the context of a financial plan. We have to know what's important to our clients in order to build that plan for them. So what that means is that we talk a lot about long-term goals, about you know margin of error, and even though we had a significant downturn in the market, our clients knew that they were still on track to meet those goals. And that's right. really key to sit through volatility. I have to say, I mean, that has been a, a point of comfort for me, at least so far, is like, you got, like, you know, you, you sort of, like, squint your eyes a little bit, like, you brace yourself, then you look at the portal, yeah. okay, you're like, okay, like, maybe, yeah. you know, maybe we're going to be okay through right. all of this. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> all right, Kara Murphy, great to hear your voice. Uh, good luck down in Dallas, especially uh, at what is certainly an uncertain time there in Texas. Kara Murphy is Chief Investment Officer for Goldman Sachs Personal Financial Management, joining us on the phone from the Big D. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.